The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 scientifically validated strains for whole body benefits, engineered for maximum delivery to your colon, helping to support a healthy heart, maintain optimum cholesterol balance and lipid metabolism, as well as reinforce an optimal gut-skin access to promote clear skin. Visit seed.com Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome to our new four-part mini-series, in which we'll be looking back at festive food from down the ages, from the fairly revolting to the downright delicious and sadly forgotten dishes that have graced our Christmas tables over the centuries. I'm joined in this culinary adventure by Annie Gray, food historian and the author of At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages. In this second episode, Annie transports us back to a festive feast from the Georgian era, taking in glamorous dinner parties, dangerous parlour games and decadent wine chocolate. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about different Christmas feasts through the ages. We're on the next part of our journey into Georgian Christmas. What sums up the Christmas spirit in the Georgian era? Behind closed doors, I would say. Certainly for the wealthy, Christmas was, as most people are aware, kind of under threat in the 17th century. So the Puritans, Parliament, Oliver Cromwell, they never banned Christmas. They just sort of 
outlawed the celebration of it in an outward fashion. Uh, there was no such thing as a declaration against plum puddings and all those kind of rumours that we've heard today, largely made up by pamphlets, in pamphlets by the royalists. So uh, it was very much rumour and counter-rumour. But Christmas was frowned upon. It was very much celebrated behind closed doors, if celebrated at all. There was genuinely an element within British society that did not feel it should be celebrated in the way it had been. It was seen as a drunken riot. It was just an excuse to grope people, behave really badly, throw society into upheaval. And essentially, it was a pagan festival, thinly disguised as a Christian one. They did have a point. But at the same time, they also said it was papist and deeply Catholic. So, you know, they, they kind of threw everything at Christmas. When the monarchy was restored in 1660, Christmas came back, but it, it never got quite the kind of kudos that it had before. It was never as universal. And there were always, always people that said, actually, you know, it, it, it was a bit over the top, wasn't it? So by the time you get to the Georgian era, so 1714 through to sort of 1837, it's one of those kind of things where people still like it. A lot of people love it a lot. But certainly among the fashionable, there's a kind of sense of unease, a sense that actually it is a bit plebeian. It is a bit of an excuse for people to get drunk and behave badly. And, and they want to celebrate it in a slightly more sort of the private way. Um, the idea of going out of doors and having to deal with people. Some of the spirit, I would say, that's around today uh, is certainly alive and well in the Georgian period. So you get a kind of divided Christmas. So a lot of it is very much about how you celebrate it personally. And it's also very much at this point not about children. Um, and you know, it never has been, but I think it's important to point out in the Georgian era that it's not particularly about children because of what comes after. Um, you say in your book that this was a time in which, you know, people, some people complained about the effort of entertaining. Others complained that Christmas was becoming too commercial. And as you say, that all sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, even in the sort of at the end of the 16th century, you had people complaining of profiteering among orange sellers. Uh, and certainly by the Georgian period, there was this feeling that actually it was just an excuse to sell people things. Uh, and you do, you get adverts, specific Christmas adverts from the 1720s onwards for various gifts. And gift giving at Christmas was a thing that really came about in that era. Previously, you would give gifts at New Year and you would give gifts at Michaelmas. And those were the sort of re reciprocal ones between um, tenants and, and, and landlords. But this idea of giving a gift at Christmas was, it was there, but it wasn't huge. Whereas in the Georgian era, it is the traditional era of consumerism. It's the explosion of consumption culture. It's the era where we get fast moving consumer goods really for the first time and especially disposable consumer goods. I think that the sort of ultimate emblem really of certainly the early Georgian period is the clay pipe because you have them. You find them in every archaeological dig going. You know, there are bits of pipe stem. You're lucky if you find a bowl. But, you know, they're really disposable. And they're made in their thousands, if not their millions. And people smoke them and they tap them out and they break and they chuck them away and they buy another one. And it's the equivalent of, you know, the... the takeaway coffee cup. And you see the same in fashion, that you get slightly more fast-moving fabrics. People are still very much using and reusing fabric. But with the advent of things like cotton calicos and cheap printing, and you know, this is a period where shopping, really shopping for pleasure and for stuff, it really comes in. Ribbons, you know, as women, we'd be out there buying our ribbons. Even if we didn't have much money, let's buy a ribbon because it's a really good way to tie ourselves up. Um, furniture, oh my goodness, you know, ceramics, and bone china is invented. This is amazing. 
So from a Christmas point of view, of course, if you're a manufacturer, what can you do to sell your product? Oh, well, brilliant. There's this time of the year where people are giving gifts to each other. So let's take out an advert in this new explosion of print culture as well. So you can see why people are going, hang on a minute. When I was young, nobody was talking about selling special anodyne necklaces specifically for your children at Christmas. It's all so commercialized. We've forgotten the meaning. Light big fires and get drunk. That's the meaning. So if we have a left the era of a hundred person feasts, um, drunken revelry behind. And we've moved into this new era of individualism and commercialism and partying behind closed doors. What does that mean for Christmas celebrations? Did we still have the 12 days of Christmas or had that bit the dust? There were, there was the idea of the 12 days, but it was a little bit like the sort of, you know, this was a thing we used to do back in the day. So very, very few people, certainly by the end of the Georgian period, very few people even thought about keeping the 12 days. And the Georgian era as well is one where there's a lot of movement socially, culturally, and in terms of government regulation as well. So by the end of the era, we only have four bank holidays left, um, which means you can't really take Christmas. Um, And actually Good Friday is more important in a lot of ways than Christmas in terms of taking the day off. Um, So the 12 days have dwindled. I mean, there are lots of other factors as well, things like the fact that we now have an agricultural revolution underway, which means that we don't down tools in the winter because actually you can farm for much longer and new cattle breeds are around and have been bred that, you know, don't need to be slaughtered at the beginning of winter anymore. And you can keep, anyway, there's so many changes. But the essence is that the 12 days are kind of gone. There may well be meals throughout that Christmas period and they may well take place beyond Christmas Day itself. But there's no expectation that you will keep house and keep hospitable house for the entire 12 days. There's no expectation that you will bring your tenants into your house because they might nick something. Uh, There's no expectation that you will even see people if you want to. Uh, And while it does differ a bit by class, because you do get the feeling very much that the the middle classes and the sort of lower gentry and rural, more rural people are very much more into Christmas than urban fashionites, um, it, it has dwindled a lot. So it's really Christmas Day and also Twelfth Night is still very, very big. Um, as an as a excuse to have a really good celebration. But the rest in between is kind of just, you know, the equivalent of sitting down and going, oh, God, is there anything on the telly? No, I think I might do some work, actually. If we're Georgian ladies with a reasonable amount of money, who are we celebrating with? Is it just our family or perhaps a select group of friends? Well, let's assume we're the kind of gentry ladies who like Christmas, first of all. So we're not going to ignore it completely and just go to our country house and shut up the doors and refuse to see anybody. Um, We will celebrate it with friends and family. Uh, It is not, there's no emphasis on it being a family holiday, but in the families, households were bigger then. That is the kind of of atmosphere you would expect. And assuming we like Christmas, we are going to get together and celebrate it. We do want to have people over. So we might start off, I mean, we're not doing Advent fasts anymore. All of that's gone out the window. We're not, we're not those kind of people. So perhaps, you know, before the period even gets going, somewhere around the 23rd, 24th, we might start thinking about parties. And of course, you know, we have got a country house, obviously. It's only small, only modest. Um, but we've recently stuck a, a rather lovely portico on the front door and had the whole thing refaced. So obviously it's shooting season. Uh, I mean, guns have not got as good as they will do, but nevertheless, it's shooting and party season and, and there's a level of sort of country pursuits on. Uh, we also have to go back to the country house from time to time to persuade people to vote for our husbands in various elections. So there are reasons to be there. And we do want a bit of largesse. 
So certainly I would say you and I have probably been doing things like a little bit of charity work. So uh, we'll be giving out meat and fuel to the poor in our parish because that's our role as chatelaines, organising alms to some extent. But when it comes to partying, we might venture out for a few balls. Uh, hopefully we've got a carriage and don't have to walk over the fields in our galoshes clutching our dancing shoes because it gets very muddy. But dinner at this point, really, if we're lower gentry or upper gentry, is probably around sort of four o'clock in the afternoon. So we're talking about the 1780s here. So the thing about dinner at that point is the light is okay when you go there. So we might walk over the fields, we might go there, have a really uproarious dinner and then sort of sit around for a while, you know, singing and reading out things and then sort of make our way back in the dark. But it's all very jolly. So we'll start doing that because it is that period and it's cosy and big fires are there. We might potentially involve some children. They could make perhaps paper chains and put them up. But frankly, it's not really about the children. It's quite nice to have them out there and doing stuff, but then pack them off to the nursery. Uh, And then we're going to have a a lovely, lovely party on Christmas Day itself. Big meal, uh, three courses. So uh, lots and lots of dishes on the table at once. There'll be a few favourites that appear there. And then afterwards, we're all going to get together and we're going to play Snapdragon because nothing says Christmas like a massive bowl full of currants with brandy in it set on fire where we all have to reach in and pull out a current because that is pretty cool. And do you know what? Even the kids can join in. Um, Why not let them down? They can join and then they can go back to bed. Uh, downstairs, of course, in our kitchens and our servants' quarters, we are well aware the whole thing is being celebrated a little bit less sedately. And um, we can hear the noise, quite frankly. There's a servants' hall party going on. It's a bit impromptu. We probably ought to organise something. There's mistletoe. There's a lot of, well, thumping in, in cupboards happening. And quite frankly, the whole thing is a little bit sort of whatever. But uh, the main thing is there's a lot of alcohol around, really. Uh, so we're going to have a lovely, lovely time. But it's really just family. And we might see friends over the period. Um, but And then on 12th, night actually we will have our friends over but only the ones we trust because it's still got that level of danger and uproariousness around it so we'll have over the people we trust uh you or i might be single and invite that nice young man from down the road who we rather like because 12th night has a lot of potential in that respect and we'll just you know arrange some things so that it all works out with the forfeits and the cards and just uh, we'll just see how it goes you never know 12th night sounds like a bit of a new year's eve vibe yeah, very. Twelfth Night was really the New Year's Day of its time. Uh, and it's a lovely, lovely thing. I'm huge in favour of bringing back Twelfth Night parties. So I think we should bring back 6th January as a huge excuse to have cake and play games and just, you know, have a lot of fun. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it was the sauce and a lot of time and energy went into creating the right melted butter sauce and a lot of writers get very exercised about bad melted butter sauces this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. 
Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person and I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So I'm going to take us back to the Christmas dinner table because I want a few more specifics here. You mentioned that there might be some um, old favorites amongst the dishes served. What kind of things should we look out for? Well, we're going to look out for certain dishes which now have really become associated with Christmas in quite a big way. Again, they're not exclusive to Christmas. There are no foods called Christmas whatever. So Christmas pudding, Christmas cake, none of that exists. But there are foods which I would say that pretty much every table has on at Christmas. So the big ones are beef and plum pudding. And they're going to be at either end of the table on the second course. So you're going to have a massive sirloin of beef because we are wealthy and we can afford it. And at the other end is going to be a huge plum pudding, almost the same size as the beef. And we'll probably have boiled that in a cloth because it is Christmas. And while moulds are in and plum puddings are big news, I think the traditional cannonball shape. It's the one you see on all the satires. And to do that, you're going to make your plum pudding mixture, which is very similar to a modern day Christmas pudding mixture, but with less, um, a lot less sugar. And it's normally firmer. And you pile it all into a pudding cloth and you squeeze it round and it forms an amazing ball. And then you boil that in the world's biggest saucepan or indeed a copper, such as you would get in a a laundry. Uh, And it comes out and you have this sort of cannonball shaped pudding, although realistically it's more of a squat oval, trust me. And so that wasn't a dessert as it would be today. It was served with the beef. Yes. So dessert in the Georgian period is quite specific and it evolved out of the banqueting course that we talked about in the last episode, in the Tudor episode. The banqueting course for the Tudors was all about sugar craft and uh, sort of palate cleansing, really. And that evolved over the next 200 years or so to be something that was still about cleansing your palate. And it was usually for the Georgians, ice cream, a little bit of sugar stuff. So maybe some sculpture, uh, nuts, very, very lots lots of fresh fruit. Uh, especially in December, because you could show off the skill of your gardeners with your fresh fruit. But the idea of dessert was it wasn't a course as such. I mean, it was, but it wasn't It wasn't going to fill you up. You don't want to eat dessert and then go, oh, God, I can't move. So dessert was light. And all of the dishes that we today would call dessert or we would lump under the generic heading of pudding, they were all in the second course. And puddings were very specific. They were actual puddings. They were not cakes or brownies or gatto or whatever they were puddings and puddings meant boiled in a pudding mold mainly although you could bake them and they were also sausages but let's not go into the definition of puddings because we'll be here forever uh so your plum pudding was part of the second course and it was eaten with all the other dishes on the table so the way to recreate a georgian christmas in your own home today would be to have a slice of really lovely rareish beef and a slice of plum pudding christmas pudding uh, and eat them together and you can put them in a sandwich <laughs> and it makes a really really good Boxing Day lunch. Sounds like your answer to everything is put it in a sandwich. I think it is. It's either put it in a sandwich or put it on a pizza. 
Um, <laughs> and I have done both with beef and plum pudding and they do work very, very well together. And the, the plum pudding is, is like chutney, I suppose. If you think about the rich flavours that we would associate with chutneys, so dried fruit, spices, obviously chutneys have vinegar in, but they also have a lot of sugar in. Um, so they've got that sort of sweet, savoury note. Uh, and that's what a good plum pudding with beef would have it. The beef complements the plum pudding and vice versa. And they were absolutely emblematic of, of England in particular. So if you look at satires in the Georgian era, you will often find the plum pudding used to stand in for Britain. There's a very famous Gilray satire called The Plum Pudding in Danger, where Napoleon is carving up uh, the plum pudding, which is a, a map of the globe. And they're really, really sunk into the English psyche. And those are feast foods. So coronation feasts, birthday feasts, coming of age feasts, you name it. If it's a feast, beef and plum pudding. So of course it's on the table at Christmas. But they're not the only Christmas dishes. So alongside the beef and the plum pudding, what else do we have? Is there a sense of having roast vegetables with those like we might expect today or not at all? I have to say vegetable cuisine in the past is the bit where my love of food history does fall down slightly. Uh, roasting at that point meant putting something in front of a fire. So you could roast, in heavily inverted commas, potatoes, but actually they're baked potatoes. So you would just put the potato... You, and you could also roast, in heavily inverted commas, potatoes by putting them under the joint as well. The, the main accompaniments were meat and more meat and a bit more meat because it's prestigious. So you would probably have, or you would have, roast fowl, so roast poultry because it's in season. Turkey was introduced to the country in the late Tudor era. So turkey did sometimes appear on a Christmas table because it's big, it's impressive, it tastes nicer than peacock. If you're very rich, you might have swan. Peacock's gone. Swan is uh, still hanging on in there. You're going to have game on the table because it's in season, it's prestigious, and that will always be roast. Your turkey's probably boiled, but your game will be roast and it will be roasted in front of the fire, head on, legs on, uh, so that you can tell what it is. And it will be sitting on a piece of bread to keep it stable. And the vegetable accompaniments for those, they're kind of implied in a lot of menus. There's a lot of talk of how nobody ate any vegetables in the past because they don't appear on the table, but they're just there. They're not usually talked about because most of the vegetables, unfortunately, were boiled and served with melted butter sauce, which is a beautiful sauce, don't get me wrong. But roast potatoes are better. Let's just say that. And potatoes may well have been there. Potatoes were relatively popular, uh, not so much at the upper class level because, of course, they were a little associated with the poor. But on the other hand, they're kind of tasty, so you would do. Uh, and you're looking a lot of the time at unseasonal vegetables. So asparagus was really popular on the Christmas table because... <laughs> Poor people couldn't afford asparagus in the middle of winter, whereas the rich could. So asparagus was popular. Jerusalem artichokes, very popular. Very unwise, I would say, but also very popular. Uh, again, because they're in season, they're very tasty and because they take a lot of space to grow. Uh, and then lots and lots and lots of fresh fruit at the end. So the vegetables were there. They just weren't in the form of sprouts and roast potatoes and parsnips with honey that we would expect today. You mentioned their melted butter sauce, um, <laughs> which you discuss in the book as, as a ubiquitous sauce, um, but it's pretty much forgotten now. What was that? Melted butter sauce is one of those things where you see it all the time in recipe books and it will just usually call it melted butter. The first few times I encountered it, I just assumed it was melted butter because I can't think of anything nicer to put on your vegetables. But actually it wasn't. It was a sort of Precursor to the white sauce, really. So to make it, you just take equal quantities of melted of, of butter and flour, and then you melt them together to make a roux, and then you add water, and then you put a bit of vinegar in at the end. That's it as its most basic. Um, and in some ways, that sounds really insipid. And in some ways, it is really insipid. 
but it has a sort of gentle appeal to it, a sort of understated blandness that does go very well with vegetables. And you can flavour it up as well. So melted butter sauce was used as the basis for sweeter sauces. You could add booze to it, you could add sugar to it. Uh, and it was used as the basis for things like caper sauces. So chopped capers go in or mushrooms go in. or It was kind of a lot like a white sauce where you would add lots of other things into it. But it was the sauce and a lot of time and energy went into creating the right melted butter sauce and a lot of writers get very exercised about bad melted butter sauces so it is worth trying and I think as well in a sort of modern context where a lot of people are watching their weight and where the average Christmas meal is something like 5,000 calories you know actually there is a role I think for melted butter sauce because it is slightly more forgiving on the waistline than other sauces sort of I mean there's a lot of butter in it Sounds good to me. So, Annie, what is your Georgian recipe that you're going to share with us? So, the Georgian era, the Georgian era for me is one of the best food eras that has ever been in this country because the flavours, from a modern perspective, the flavours are different enough that they are interesting to us, but similar enough that we don't go, oh my goodness, what on earth is that? And a lot of the flavours are things that I really like. There's a lot of dairy, there's a lot of spice, but it's sort of really interesting spices. And there's chocolate and there's tea and there's coffee. And for me, I how could I cope with an era before caffeinated beverages? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but it's there. Uh, so the recipe that I'm nominating for the Georgian era is a recipe called wine chocolate, which is from John Knott's um, Cooks and Confectioners Dictionary. I was really hoping that you would <laughs> choose this one. <laughs> it is amazing. I, I cooked this recipe a lot for demonstrations and I've cooked it a lot in costume as well. And somehow when you're dressed as a Georgian, it really works. So, I mean, it's, it's so easy. It's basically a bottle of port uh, and a heap tablespoon of, of a thickener. Rice flour is what I tend to use. Um, and then sort of about 125 grams of chocolate, uh, as, as dark as you can get it. And uh, you can use unsweetened chocolate, but then you'll need to add some sugar in order to kind of bring out the flavours. And you essentially break up the chocolate and then you pour everything into a pan and then you bring it to a really gentle simmer just to thicken it up. And you end up with something that's kind of the consistency of really thick cream, still pouring, but really, really beautiful and molten. And then if you're a Georgian, you pour it in a chocolate pot and you give it a good old froth and you make sure everything's well mixed in. And then you serve it in small cups. So you're talking sort of 100 mil, 120 mil cups. You don't need much. It's kind of the equivalent of an espresso. And then you you eat that or you, you drink it and, and you just think, do you know what, actually, the year's been all right, really. And it's the next year is going to be great and almost like molten Turkish delight. And I, I don't even like port. You can do it with sherry. You can do it with ginger wine. You can do it with any fortified alcohol. So you know, for these people who think of Christmas as being associated with sort of coffee liqueurs or Irish creams, those kind of things, I always say, don't even go there. They're just, they're so sickly and horrible. Go full on Georgian, have wine chocolate. And sit back and think to yourself, do you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy myself a copy of Elizabeth Raffold and that's going to be my life from now on. So for anyone like me that is going to try wine chocolate this Christmas, do let us know. Tweet us and tell us how you (laughs) found it because we would love to know. That leads me on to uh, uh, my final question. I mean, the answer to this may well be wine chocolate, but if you could bring one thing from the Georgian era through to modern Christmas, what would you choose? It would be the variety of food on the table. There's no one food still that's associated with Christmas. There's an awful lot to choose from and the service style 
at a rich level, which is à la française, so lots and lots of things on the table at once, means that everybody makes their own meal. So I would get rid of this modern obsession with four or five dishes making up Christmas, and I would go large on all sorts of beautiful things, and I would put them all on the table, and I would just say, do you know what? Knock yourselves out. And then we'd finish, obviously, with wine chocolate. That was Annie Gray. Her book, At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food from Down the Ages, is available now, published by Profile. Annie also wrote a feature on historical Christmas feasts for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, and that is on sale now. Next Saturday, we'll be back with more Christmas feasting, as Annie and I delve into festive feasts in the Victorian era, from creepy greetings cards to booze-soaked tipsy cakes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.